Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome to Punching Out. You're here with Ariel and Tom. And later on in the segment, we're going to be talking to Doug Henwood, uh, a uh, journalist and um, overall kind of genius about uh, finance capital. Um, and we wanted to have Doug on because Tom and I don't really know that much about this stuff. And I think that's generally the case uh, for people who are even very, very interested in politics that the the finance aspect, the, the sort of abstract legal instruments uh, for injecting and extracting capital, um, they get extremely complicated, hard to follow, and they tend to obfuscate or hide uh, the relationships uh, that exist under them. Um, but, uh, you know, as we know, th- even at a gut level, these uh, forces are the power at the base of our society at this point and have been for the last... Uh, well, probably since the beginning of the Republic, but uh, they've certainly been on the, in the ascendancy since uh, the 1970s. Yeah. So you you know Doug a little bit, right? I I, I was uh, on a uh, email list with him back in the uh, 2000s, uh, mm. and we had some back and forth, and then I've just you know known him from Facebook more or less. Hmm read a couple of his books. My wife uh, read Wall Street, and she was she suggested uh, that, and I read that, and I read After the New Economy. Hmm. Uh, he's written a, a number of books, uh, Wall Street, After the New Economy. Uh, he was, uh, he's been, and he continues to be maligned uh, for uh, his book, My Turn. Uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton targets the presidency. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think people are still blaming him for uh, Hillary losing. Yeah. That's... Uh, <laughs> It's kind he's, of a mo- he's a very, very powerful person, clearly. Yes, right. Yeah, it was, it was his reason she lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I enjoy his work. I listen to uh, Behind the News uh, pretty frequently. And, you know, he's excellent in taste in music. Um, but just a really good, solid command of, uh, of the sort of international character of capital in a way that uh, I found very helpful. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, as... <laughs> we engage in uh, activism and and struggles. It's very very important to understand the uh, uh, what you know uh, in Marxist jargon would be called the base. Uh, uh, the, you know, underneath that underpins the ideology and all the uh, all the uh, various uh, the workings su- of our society, the superstructural, the superstructural elements elements of our society, <laughs> um, but. It is, uh, it is so complicated, um, and, and possibly deliberately so. Um, it very much resembles, a, you know, a, a, some type of gambling scheme, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. pyramid schemes, and with good reason because that's exactly what it is. Right, right. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of shell game where money just valorizes itself, but you have to have it. You have to have control of it first in order for that to happen. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't valorize out of nothing. It valorizes out of out of different ways of exploiting labor, 
um, or in some cases like primitive accumulation, like in the housing crisis where capital just found this really uh, handy way of exploiting uh, poor people by extending loans to them uh, and then selling those loans as junk but not telling anybody um, so that they could precipitate a foreclosure crisis. And lo and behold, all of these homes that formerly owned by, you know, what we would call middle-class people are now the, are the proper, the property of hedge funds. Um, but like at different levels of that shell game, nobody knew what was going on. You can't tell, you, you couldn't tell the underlying mechanisms that were at work. Um, you know, you couldn't tell until the whole thing collapsed. And then we had to do kind of an autopsy, a postmortem. Um, but that's, that's kind of one of the terrifying ways that the, the abstractness of, uh, capital, um, can be, can be dangerous. Uh, and, and I think it goes right down to the very bottom. Um, you know, capital, uh, you know, a, a capital's uh, main commodity form of money hides a relationship between people and a thing. That's right. And you hand somebody a dollar and you no longer have responsibility for a direct relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. It's mediated by the dollar. Mm-hmm. And then if you keep abstracting and abstracting, you can... You, um, get, you get the expectation of a dollar, which yes. is what credit is. Right. So the more abstract uh, we get in this process, the more it is hidden by uh, ideology and obfuscation. And um, it just seems like a black box where, um, you know, you put a dollar in and you get a million dollars out. Um, That's right. And the workings are left, uh, you know, a good example would be like the replacement of pension funds, which are direct... Um, payment to a, a retiree with 401k uh, mm. program. So mm. rather than, you know, a, a fund on which you're, you know, being drawn upon, you're, you're investing in the stock market. And right. who knows what that even is? Sure. Uh, you know, but our, but, you know, many of our listeners and my uh, retirement depends upon this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know what is what does that entail and and you know what is the power uh, relationship there yeah, um, yeah. so i i have a 401k too um and i've you know every once in a while like once a year the management company that uh, that takes care of my money i guess uh they come in and they do like a little lunchtime sort of teach in about their products and stuff like that and they sort of they go through it and they end up just giving this these massive charts of just like hundreds of different possible stocks and showing us the different formulas by which depending on what you want uh, or what stage of your career you're at they will take your money and they'll divide it up um, among all these things like pork futures or like i don't know like walnuts uh, or you know um uh raytheon or right. <laughs> military industrial complex like um but even even less directly than that and and more kind of uh, mediated like sometimes there's there're just dozens and dozens of different funds that consist of those things uh which they round up and then they take my money and then they divvy it up among not only the actual stocks but funds involving different slices of stocks and not even just stocks but you know maybe maybe uh junk mortgages Mm -hmm. that's right yeah we'd have no idea um like i don't know how much of my money is going to uh like make bombs to kill iraqis right i have no idea and i have no control over it and it sort of it removes a kind of moral dimension uh from from your own investment 
right? So like it's just so complicated and so so mediated that like you can't even really think about where your money's going to go because it's just going to go everywhere. Um, and not only that, like it's not. I'm not really in control of it. I'm giving it away to this kind of roulette wheel uh, of the stock market. And it's apparently going to do some things. And I'll find out what it does when I retire. But I have... Or not. Or not. <laughs> All right. um, or I'll find out that it's gone. Um, but yeah, so so there's just so many layers of mystification involving involving money. And it only gets more and more complicated. And some of what we talk talk about with uh, with Doug is like kind of about that mystification, um, and it's it's really kind of disconcerting. And and the the hand of ideology is in fact quite heavy, and yet uh, <laughs> invisible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite, it's very it's very visible. <laughs> um, yeah, you can see it you can see it work all the time if you if you just look if you put on the they live sunglasses. Um, All right. you, you can, you can see the, you can see the way that ideology is pushing you to not ask certain questions or not, not frame, uh, certain problems in such a way that endanger it. Right. Cause one, you know, one second you're looking at, you know, okay, this is my IRA. Mm -hmm. And then you drill down, <clears throat> um, one level and you're like, okay, here's the funds that are there. And then you go drill down further and pretty soon you have like a million things that you need to understand. Yes. Yes. And so you give up. And that's right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, can, can you, can you tell us what a stock is? <laughs> can I tell you what a stock is? Yeah. What's a stock? It is a part ownership of a company, um, that you hold and you can also sell. Um, it provides an influx of capital to that company when I buy it initially, um, at the offering. Uh, but then it just ends up getting traded uh, unless the it gets traded around other people uh, because it becomes valuable in and of itself if it goes up in price or down in price. Um, and sometimes the company can buy it back for different strategic reasons. But, but the, the actual money being used for any sort of production is only in the initial offering. That is right. That is right. So if you're buying shares of Kodak, or which you probably wouldn't be doing, uh, <laughs> let's say something else. Let's say you're buying shares of uh, uh, one of Elon Musk's companies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite l unlikely that that money is going to get to that company. Right. Right. <coughs> you're simply gambling at that point. Yeah. 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 At, at, at bottom, it's exactly what it is. Just speculation. Yeah. Um. But it's and, and speculation is something that has uh, the it, it it it's absolutely wrapped up in the history of this country from day one. Yeah, the day that you know the the colonial uh, system broke down and and the American uh, Revolution was won, those founding fathers went on a land speculation grab. Mm -hmm. Aaron Burr for like if you if you drive around New York State you'll notice that there's many towns that are named Syracuse and uh, Ovid and um, all these classical names you yeah. know from Greek and Roman uh, and, and these are all these were all named by these so-called founding fathers who 
grabbed land and speculation, then lost their shirts. Yeah. Aaron Burr, for instance, owned lots of New York State, and he lost a shirt in land speculation. So speculation, and, and throughout the 19th century, speculation created uh, unbelievable misery in the United States. Sure. And, and Westward expansion was uh, in large part fueled by uh, Absolutely. like precious mineral uh, speculation. Right. Um, and it's just it seems like such an such an irrational uh, way of ordering a society, where you just you're taking these wild guesses on what arbitrarily valuable thing um, you need to possess in order to trade it or just hoard the money or whatever. It's like why wouldn't you why wouldn't we just get together and just plan that kind of stuff? Why wouldn't you just plan the value of things? Right. Um, and and sort of base uh, base. Uh, the, your capacity to live a healthy life on a, like a direct connection with your labor and the direct um, the direct distribution of the fruits of that labor. This is this is one of the many many reasons I'm I'm a socialist. It's it, the, the irrationality of the way that we uh, we produce value in this country um, is it just seems to be completely untenable. It's untenable, and you know, and at another level, although you know, we may not like to speak of moral. Uh, uh, considerations mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's deeply immoral. It is, it is gambling. Yeah. Speculation is just another word for for gambling, and you know, gambling uh, has a long history um, uh, throughout all of recorded history yeah. as something that's led to ruin. That's right. Yeah, you know, people's ruin. It's a, it's a dissipative activity. It's a, it's, it's vicious in that way, right? Like it's, uh, it accentuates the worst aspects of human, of human, uh, personality. Uh, yes. Greed, um, laziness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. you want something for nothing. Yeah. In the, in the interview, in the interview, you, you sort of bring up, you bring up the Marx quote about, uh, um, about the, the ruling class of a certain period being basically the lumpen proletariat, but in a, in, in a high, higher born situation. I think that's right. Like, like it's in some, in some ways, our way of approaching wealth and value, it diminishes us personally. Right. Um, Maybe it, we should use the, the lumpen proletariat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a, 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 something that was used by Karl Marx and some other, uh, it was actually a common term. It basically refers to um, gangsters, pimps, prostitutes, gamblers, mm-hmm. um, sort of people that are outside of the working economy, right? Out of the legitimate working economy. Um, so they needed a special classification because they, their, their interest in this in the, in the working class's interest sometimes, um, sometimes conflict, even though they're both on the lowest end of the, of the spectrum, uh, with regard to the economy. And a lot of times the lump and proletariat would be used as like sort of shock troops to, um, undermine working class activity because of their different relationships to, uh, to, to labor and to the market itself. So anyway, that's a, so when you hear that, when you hear that term, that's what you mean by that. Um, all right. So, uh, I will, let's get into the interview. Um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great conversation. Doug's a good talker. Um, and, uh, we'll be back after the break. Thanks. Thank you. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter, at Punching Out Wayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Okay. Um, welcome to Punching Out, a show about work. Uh, you're here with uh, Tom. 
and also our special guest, uh, Doug Henwood, a journalist and uh, writer on economic matters, uh, among other things. Um, so uh, say hi, Doug. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Um, so I think uh, Tom uh, has asked you to come and talk to us about uh, issues surrounding uh, finance capital and the effects that finance capital has uh, on workers. Um, I know personally, as a you know decades long socialist, uh, I still because of the abstract nature of uh, the discipline, I, I still don't have a firm grasp on it, and it, it gets away from me. Um, so it's, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an obscure field, although. Um, you know, the technicalities are obscure, but I think the fundamentals are pretty simple. Um, finance, you know, broadly conceived as a system for uh, asserting ownership and control and extracting as much value uh, from the economic system as possible. And since that value is produced by workers uh, working on the natural environment, uh, you know, that's basically finance is a, a mechanism for transferring uh, income upwards. Yeah. to uh, the owning class. It's, that's basically what it's all about. I mean, the, the details get more complex than that, but uh, the fundamentals are that. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it is, it is the sort of increasing le- level of abstraction about the way that uh, the instruments are used uh, and, and what they consist in. That's, that's what gets kind of baffling and, uh, and, and uh, sort of becomes sort of fetish, <laughs> fetishized. Um, civilians who don't, you know, really are not immersed in this stuff... Uh, often look at it and say, this makes no damn sense. It's all insane. Mm. And, um, you know, as you look closely at it, you can understand how the pieces all fit together, but I don't think you should ever lose that sense. This is all really insane (laughs) because it kind of is. I mean, it's a system that tries to address the provision of material needs for people to keep a society going, to keep individuals going, uh, through preposterously complex and abstract methods, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, confuse people um, and uh, obscure the, the, the fundamental class relationship behind uh, behind finance. But the sense that it is exploitative and wacky should uh, never be far from one's mind. <laughs> right. And <clears throat> I think that, you know, in the last, say, 20 to 30 years, we've seen finance capital in particular raise itself up to uh, a level of ascendancy in our economic system that, you know, wasn't possible in the past and you know I, recently I was reading uh, uh, some of Marx's political works and he there's a quote from, from him in there where and he was talking about the the reign of uh, Louis Napoleon and he said in the way it acquires wealth and enjoys it the financial aristocracy is nothing but the lumpen proletariat reborn at the pinnacle of bourgeois society it seems <laughs> I, I love that quote it, That's it, beautiful. It, it, That's seems, beautiful. it seems to resonate you know you see all the gold bathrooms and, you know, all the Trump uh, trimmings and, and the tackiness and stuff like that that you just didn't see in the ruling class 40 or 50 years ago. You know, they were all shabby, yeah. shabby, preppy. Um, you uh, know, I think, yeah, we've come a long way from that old wasp ruling class that, you know, that ran the country and from the, you know, from its founding, basically, until, uh, oh, I don't know, really the mid Seventies, late seventies, and then since then, we've seen the ascendance of a really new class of cap- uh, capitalists uh, that took off with uh, the bull market in the early nineteen eighties, uh, and 
people like Trump really um, signify that or uh, symbolize that. Uh, Trump himself and a lot of people around him, uh, and they're not like the capitalists of the late 19th uh, century. Uh, they, were, they were brutal uh, and murderous and uh, horrible in many ways. But you know they did uh, produce a transcontinental railroad and an industrial infrastructure. Uh, a lot of people like Trump and Wilbur Ross, his commerce secretary, and uh, his uh, his advisor, the private equity guy Steve Schwartzman, are essentially looting the system uh, and just uh, trying to, uh, with this kind of smash and grab model of of, uh, of how to how to get rich. Uh, they're not producing much in the way of, of new wealth, uh, new systems, new modes of accumulation. It's just all uh, looting the existing assets. You see some tech people who are, uh, are doing that to some degree. But uh, these, these buyout artists, all these Wall Street types, uh, and Trump himself uh, have been just uh, looting the system uh, as much as they can without really producing much uh, for the rest of us. Do, do you think that they're this – kind of mentality of the smash and grab uh, comes from a consciousness on the part of the ruling class that there isn't really much in the way of enforcement mechanisms that they need to even pay lip service to. I, I increasingly get the sense that they, A, kind of see this whole thing as just uh, swirling down the drain or just getting what they can, and B, uh, are just not even not even constrained by the politeness of pretending that the, the liberal state is, is worth even uh, even paying attention to. No, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, Andrew Carnegie, uh, who, you know, spent a, a lifetime accumulating and then spent his, his final years giving it away by building libraries around the country. Uh, or, you know, the, the junior uh, generations of Rockefellers who uh, you know, took the money that uh, the senior uh, uh, created through incredibly brutal and exploitative means and, you know, created philanthropies and universities and, and things like that. Uh, there's very little of that ethic. Uh, I, I think a couple of things are going on. Uh, one is um, that uh, – well, uh, let me add to that – that one of the things that's striking about Trump and his whole administration and a lot of the Republican Party uh, these days is that uh, none of the traditional rhetoric, American rhetoric about a glorious future – uh, you hear none of that coming out of them. You hear none of the stuff that Bill Clinton liked to talk about, you know, the building the bridge to the 21st century, using that Fleetwood Mac song, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, is, 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 is uh, the theme song of his campaign, which, you know, really damaged Fleetwood Mac's reputation, perhaps irreparably. Uh, but, the um, you know, he's all about nostalgia, I mean, the sneering bitterness, uh, xenophobia, you know, xenophobia is striking because, you know, for all the problems of Clinton-style democratic politics, uh, there was an openness to you know, a lot of you know, capitalist globalization at least paid rhetoric to certain – paid rhetorical lip service to a certain cosmopolitanism. Right. These guys are just backward-looking, insular, bitter. Trump wants to recreate a world of steel mills and, like, the the, the – social landscape of 1955. It's really a striking departure from you know, uh, centuries of American history. So there's that. But I think there's something, whether it's conscious or not, uh, that, uh, that afflicts these characters, that um, 
they think there's really no future, mm. uh, at least in this country, and they just want to take the money and run. Uh, and you can see this, you know, in their their attitude about climate change, uh, that uh, they just simply will not believe that human life is, is at serious risk from climate change. Uh, but, you know, perhaps somewhere in the back of their little minds, uh, they, they're aware that this is a real threat, and they just want to uh, you know, maximize their lifestyle right now and uh, the hell with the future. After me, the deluge. Yeah, I think so. You know, the future is somebody else's problem. Right. Do you, do you think that finance capital at this point uh, internationally is ascendant, or is it just louder than the other forms of capital? Well, I'm of two minds in this sort of thing, because one, you know, there is undoubtedly an increase in the prominence and complexity and importance of of finance in the economic and political scene. But on the other hand, you know, it's always been the nature of capitalism. The the capitalism is about producing money profits. And if it produces food and housing along the way, okay, (laughs) but it's really about producing profits. Right. Uh, so, and you know, the system matures; it produces more and more. It's looking for an outlet. Uh, so, the, it's not always easy to separate the financial side from the real side. You know, it's sort of a, a mental convenience of trying to think about these two worlds uh, as perhaps different. Uh, but they are intimately linked. Money is only valuable because you can buy goods and services and labor with it. Um, the money is useless for now. That, that, that real world uh, valorization, uh, but there, it, it has grown enormously. Uh, and uh, one aspect of it, which is very important, which I don't think uh, is always fully appreciated, is that a lot of the crackdown on the working class that we've seen uh, over the last 35 or so years was mediated through financial markets, through the stock market in particular, mm-hmm. when shareholders who had been very uh, uh, quiet since the 19, from the 1929 crash into the 1970s, really started asserting themselves, demanding more power, uh, more attentiveness to increasing profits as rapidly as possible, uh, and putting pressure on corporate managements to deliver them uh, more value, more money. Uh, and so turning around... 1982-83, you saw the reorientation of corporate pol- uh, policies, uh, corporate management, more and more towards uh, these financial considerations, short-term financial considerations. So John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a famous book, The New Industrial State, came out, uh, I can't remember exactly when, late 50s, early 60s, in which he said that you know the old models of profit maximization that uh, characterized 19th and early 20th century capitalism were obsolete, and we had this world of countervailing forces. We had unions, governments, corporations, all sort of working together in some kind of harmonious balance to produce a better life for everyone, and a technocracy was in charge, and you know, all those notions of, kind of uh, Robert Baron-style capitalism. Uh, we've outgrown all that. Uh, these are just you know, youthful indiscretions on the part of capitalism, and now we've matured into something more stable and uh, egalitarian. Mm-hmm. And you know, the income distribution figures gave some support to that. We had a compression of, of inequality uh, uh, in the early World War II, dec- post-World War II decades. Uh, that all started going to reverse in the 70s. Uh, by the 80s, you know, it was all really on the junk heap. And we're back in many ways to the 19th century waste, a style of doing capitalism. Yeah. And the financial markets, which 
had been um, 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 eclipsed somewhat uh, um, after the Great Depression and uh, World War II really became much, much more prominent. And that was at the, uh, uh, happened all at the same time or uh, because of, really, uh, the increased uh, power of the owning class to demand more and more of uh, the fruits of society and less and less for everyone else. Right. It, do you do you think that this uh, this this the system that we have in place the, the, that's changed since the 1970s is vulnerable in any way? That uh, you know, working people could uh, find an end to to target it and um, overcome some of this stuff. Uh, it seems like unions are you know at their lowest point ever. Uh, it's hard to say what uh, what direction to go in in terms of um, you know where to get some leverage against all this. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it is kind of discouraging. Uh, no question about that. Um, I'd say a couple of things about that. One is, uh, although, you know, the, you would think that the financial crisis now 10 years ago uh, that began in 2008 would have discredited this model of capitalism and it would have had more serious political problems than it's uh, demonstrated, you would think, you know, we'd be entering a new kind of era, but we are still suffering and we're living under the reign of some zombie neoliberalism. Where yeah. We don't have a new order. We don't have a new political order, but there's something just not right. Something is just not working. Everything's gotten weird and ugly and surreal mm. in ways that uh, the, the world of, say, 1982 to, 19, to 2008, well, you know, things are different from that period. It's not that that neoliberal model is no longer in the ascendancy. Um, it looks... Um, obsolete and, and, and half dead. Uh, and younger people, especially in the United States and also in Britain, we're seeing this. Now, I'm not sure we're seeing it in everywhere else in the world, but we're certainly seeing it in, in the United States and in Britain. Uh, younger people just are really sick of it, and they're making demands uh, that of the sort that we haven't seen uh, in a long time. Uh, we're seeing um, you know, the Sanders campaign, wherever the limits of Bernie Sanders uh, as a political figure, uh, uh, really uh, revealed um, uh, a hunger among, especially among younger people, people under 40, say, uh, for a different way of approaching things. And you know, the, I, the, the fact that socialism as a word has lost its stigma yeah. is just shocking for some of my generation. You know, I grew up uh, in the Cold War. And calling someone a socialist was like, you know, calling a pedophile or a Satanist. It right. was just the worst insult you could throw at someone. And that just doesn't have that power anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then there is that this popular hunger for something different, which is very, very interesting. And you're seeing this insurgency within the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party has many, many problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, you're also seeing pressures coming from within that party and outside the party. And then, of course, you know, there, there, there are signs of labor militancy. Uh, the, the teacher strikes of several months ago were an example of that. Yeah. So there, there is a sense, you know, that, that maybe this whole neoliberal model and maybe capitalism itself is, is undergoing a challenge of the sort that it hasn't seen in a very long time. And, you know, I, I haven't seen anything like this, what, uh, what, what's happening with younger people uh, since I was a, a younger person myself in the, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So that, that's, that's very inspiring. Uh, and, and the system is vulnerable uh, in a lot of ways. You know, to, just to take a very specific example, the whole um, retailing and manufacturing system now really depends on very tight inventory control, mm. uh, just in time, uh, you know, everything. 
uh, that uh, parts have to be delivered to auto factories um, on a very tight schedule. Uh, Walmart, you know, gets its imports from China and they're on the shelves within days. Um, and this whole model where everything has to be done very quickly uh, is um, very vulnerable to disruption. Fragile. Uh, yeah. you, you could shut down uh, auto production in this country in a couple of days if you struck some parts plants or, you know, heaven force end, uh, blew up trucks mm. or something like that. Um, and the same thing with, you know, Walmart. If you could stop a few points of its logistical system, the, you know, the Walmart logistical system is really a wonder to behold. And anybody who's a socialist, you know, should study it because it yeah. shows that economic planning um, can, can work. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything they do is very, very planned, very, very carefully engineered and very, very ingenious. Tom, Tom, um, and, I, Tom and I joke about uh, socializing, uh, socializing Amazon, right? Like right. just they, they've done all the work for us in terms of figuring out the logistics and the reach and the speed of getting things where they need to go uh it's just you know take it over yeah it's very impressive it's it's so easy to you know to order something from them and it's at your doorstep in two days i mean that's that's very very impressive uh they do it through intense exploitation of the workforce just like walmart does um but you know there's a lot to be learned from uh, how to manage an enterprise there they really they've really mastered something and uh if it could be uh, if we could seize the means of of, of production um there's a lot to work with there but that's a that's a solid point you make i mean the the fact that the um the supply lines are so are the they're made lean uh in reaction to the sort of incentives of like efficiency and all that all that um but since they're so lean and there's such a lack of redundancy in terms of inventory and like logistics that they they are i think disproportionately uh weak um especially if we can you know interfere in them uh so that's that's a good point yeah, absolutely. But, you know, then you look at um, uh, my, my friend Jane McAlevey, who's you know, a union organizer and mm. writer, uh, uh, points out that uh, the areas where we've seen pretty successful labor mobilizations are um, um, education mm. you know, in, in the school systems uh, and uh, healthcare. And these are two things. Uh, she's, she's done a lot of work with nurses. Uh, and, you know, professions like teaching and nursing are highly respected. Yeah. Uh, the public has a great deal of respect and affection for teachers and nurses. Uh, teachers have been demonized by you know, all these educational reformers for you know a couple of decades now, but it hasn't really worked. Yeah. Most people still have a high regard for teachers. The whole idea of a public school system is still a pretty popular thing. Uh, and these are workers with great skills who are not easily replaced. And the potential for the great deal of class consciousness. Mm. Uh, so you know, there's a lot to be done there too. It's not just uh, the, you know, these kind of just-in-time models of retailing, uh, where you need very militant, very well-organized um, action. Yeah. Uh, teachers, you just can't replace them. You know, you can't. You know, there are these right-wing educational reformers who love to replace teachers with iPads, but that's <laughs> not really going to work very well. No. Uh, so there, there is these two things. You know, these these. Uh, not, you know, like super high-end professions, but really pretty sophisticated, skilled workers like teachers and, and nurses uh, who are uh, are actually being organized uh, successfully uh, and not getting enough attention. Um, and, and, you know, also you have these, these potentials for disrupting the industrial retailing sector. So you know, there, there, there is possibility. Uh, it's just a matter of, of the consciousness of the organization that uh, needs to be worked on. Right, right. I do want to have uh, Jane on here at some point in the future, so maybe we could talk about getting her on if you could help us with that. Yeah, she's 
splendid. I think she's uh, yeah. just brilliant and a great, a great talker. Too, so, yeah. yeah. I wanted to turn a little bit, um, something that is curious to me, uh, Trump's domestic economic policies. Uh, he's passed tax cuts that, uh, you know, would have made Reagan blush. Uh, he's deficit, deficit spending. Uh, a recent CBO report said uh, twin tax and spending bills will push the budget deficit to $804 billion this year and just under uh, a trillion in the upcoming budget year. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, how, how does he get away with this? What's... You know, I thought we were uh, I thought we were fiscal uh, conservatives and uh, we needed to balance the budget no, and stuff. What's the what, what's going on here? Well, since the uh, since the nineteen eighties, uh, the Democrats have been the party of fiscal responsibility. Uh, I remember it was when the hell did Dick Caucus from? I guess it was eighty eight. Uh, his campaign biography, the biopic they showed at the uh, at the Democratic convention, was of. Um, Dukakis mowing his lawn with a hand mower. And I thought, oh my God, this, this is the message they're sending us. You know, we all don our hair shirts right. and be like him. And like, that has zero appeal at all. Like, who the hell wants that kind of austerity? So the Democrats have been like this, you know, the Coddler Royal Party for, for some time now. Uh, and Bill Clinton, you know, turned the budget deficit into a surplus. Uh, he was lucky enough that uh, the tech boom happened at the same time, so the, the fiscal tightening of the was somewhat offset by um, the bubble of the, the late 90s, the dot com bubble. Um, but that all fell apart in 2000. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Bush years, well, he we went back to tax cuts and deficits. The George W. Bush years went back to tax cuts and deficits. Uh, of course, as you say, uh, the, the Trump um, cuts are really. The magnitude of those are just uh, astonishing. And Reagan's tax cuts uh, came uh, in um, just after a very deep recession and helped stimulate the economy in a classic Keynesian way uh, into into recovery in the mid-'80s. The Trump tax cuts come uh, eight or so years into an economic expansion. So injecting this much stimulus, fiscal stimulus, into an economy already at or close to full employment, even though it may not feel like that to a lot of people, it is by most conventional measures, um, injecting this much stimulus into that kind of economy would conventionally produce uh, inflation. Uh, we don't know whether it will this time, but that's the conventional expectation. Um, that would alarm the financial markets uh, and the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, you know, bondholders, bondholders would sell their bonds. I would push up long-term rates. The Federal Reserve would tighten policy. And that would eventually, if it were a normal cycle, but you know, who knows, there's not much normal about the last 10 years, uh, that would produce a recession. And with uh, the government already roughly a trillion dollars in debt, uh, in deficit, rather, um, then, uh, you know, the, that would expand to 1.2 or 1.5 trillion, uh, which is just an unprecedented amount of money. I, you know, the United States government has considerable borrowing power, but, you know, even it uh, is not infinite. Uh, uh, but, you know, it seems that um, the thing that the American elite cares about most now, and certainly this is the, uh, the, the central passion of the Republican Party, um, is, is tax cuts. They just don't want to pay taxes. And uh, the business class just wants deregulation. And whatever reservations the, um, the financial and business elite had about Trump uh, going into the election were um, largely alleviated by tax cuts and deregulation. So, and um, that's all they really seem to care about. Uh, so you'd think that um, 
there'd be a lot of concern about uh, the recklessness of this policy, but uh, there doesn't seem to be. Now, some Republicans are going to want to use the deficit as an excuse to cut domestic spending. Uh, we've already seen this uh, push now to uh, cut veterans' benefits. You know, they just love to talk about how our marvelous veterans and our, our great military, as Trump likes to call, uh, call it, but got, they certainly don't want to pay for their health care um, after, you know, we sent them abroad and wrecked them. Um, so, you know, uh, they're, they're going to try to cut domestic spending. They'll use the, the deficit as an excuse for that. But there's just not enough um, uh, of that sort of spending to uh, bring the budget back into balance. No matter how much you cut it, uh, they're going to have to go after Social Security and Medicare, uh, which is really uh, is a very, very difficult thing to do. These are deeply popular programs that uh, um, scores of millions of people depend on. So I don't really understand how they're going to uh, to, to straighten this. You know, every time I look at um, the political economy scene or uh, the punditry scene or the discursive scene in general in this country, it just seems like this is what it feels like to be living in a society that's falling to pieces. Right. Like I, uh, I think you you posted that that billboard with the Soviet uh, uh, Stalinist uh, kitsch. With uh, the GOP inside of it, yeah, the the O is filled with a hammer and sickle. It, this is apparently it, all over the Midwest now. It's just insane. Yeah, I just we were, we were talking about that before and, and, and before the show, and we, we just couldn't quite get our minds around you know where people's heads are at. It just uh, like we're, we're, I, I well, was, then you have Democrats picking up on this too. Yeah. You know, this stuff about Trump and treason yeah. and. Yeah, I think Bernie the Democrats is a Russian agent. The Democrats put the put those billboards up. Uh, the the Democrats Democrats put those billboards up because that's their line now, and, it, and it's yeah yeah but it's it's just ama- it's amazing that the like Democrats are just they have a sixth sense for exactly the least effective, most deranged take uh, uh, to to hold in any given sort of political dispute. Um, well, and one of the interesting things about the Sanders campaign was it forced all these mainstream Democrats from Hillary on down mm-hmm. to come out as really um, opposed to anything like social democracy, even right. even the you know moderately expanded welfare state. Sanders uh, talking about uh, you know free tuition, mm-hmm. college free to college tuition, and uh, universal health care, which you know these are not revolutionary proposals. No. Um, Although by the standards of American politics, I guess they are. But, you know, they were forced to come out and say, no, we're against these things. You know, they can usually say that would all be very nice, but, you know, we're just not ready for that yet. But you had people like, um, you know, various uh, Democrats' uh, surrogates um, saying, oh, no, nobody gets anything for free in America. Right. You know, um, you have to have skin in the game. Uh, So they they really had to uh, out themselves as opponents of anything like, a moderate civilized welfare state, much less you know anything more radical than that. We're not talking about socializing the means of production, but you know, they, they, and so the Democrats now are uh, now that they're seeing the the uh, the sequel to the Sanders campaign. These insurgent candidates coming from um, uh, younger left people who are challenging you know old party stalwarts uh, successfully in some cases, like Alexander Ocasio Cortez in in, in Queens. Uh, that, that's just freaking them out. They don't know what to do. So this this Russia thing is is a perfect twofer for them, uh, because it allows them to try to displace Trump, 
uh, by um, just you know, portraying him as a traitor and hoping the CIA and Mueller somehow depose him mm. without having you know, to actually win an election. But at the same time, it's, it's a way of red-baiting and marginalizing this domestic insurgency. So it's like, it's like a rerun of a lot of the politics of the Cold War, which you know, McCarthyism's domestic enemies were radicals in the labor movement yeah. and you know, left intellectuals who were giving them ideas about how to, uh, how to uh, challenge the system. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the war of the Soviet Union or the, the Cold War of the Soviet Union was part of it, but also it was, that was the home front of the Cold War. And uh, it, they're trying to revive that, even though you know, the, the use of communist rhetoric um, uh, to, to demonize the Russians and uh, domestic left, it's just it's bizarre. You know, the USSR has been dead for 25 or more years, right. but uh, it's like this, this zombie Cold Warism is back. I hadn't actually thought of it as being a, a sideways uh, stab at the uh, at the left. I just I thought it was a bizarre uh, xenophobic uh, stab at Russia. It, the, the only thing that well, it's, it's that too for sure. The only thing that's stopping me from thinking that uh, that this, that was sort of a, like a conscious part of the effort is that like I don't think that the Democrats generally have that uh, dimensional of thinking about uh, political rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but it it does no, make a certain amount of sense. It's like- and um, what is it? Lionel Trilling, the, the literary critic, said of conservatives that there's no conservative thought. There it just was it um, um, reflexes that pass for thought. Uh, and you know, I think that that applies to liberals and Democrats these days. They're not really thinking. They just have a bunch of, of reflexes. They're trying to pre- uh, resemble thought. But yeah, you look at the polling. This Russia stuff. Most people don't give a damn about this. No. It doesn't have any popular resonance at all. Um, the stuff that has popular resonance, you know, is classic, uh, classic economic concerns like wages and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have people who are concerned long term about uh, climate change. Uh, not a popular issue as I would like it to be, but you know, there, there is some constituency for that. Uh, and then uh, on on the more negative side, you have the obsession with uh, a lot of nativists about immigration and all that you know the xenophobic stuff coming out of Trump and, and some of his Republican associates. These are the real issues that we have to contend with, and uh, they're they're just evading all of it with this crazy nonsense about Russia. And uh, it, it's just it's just. You know, it's flat. I just don't know. Um, it renders me speechless. I yeah. just don't know what they, they, whether they think this is going to win an election. The, so but my, from their point of view, you know, I think they understand in some part of their reptile brains that uh, to uh, to win again, they need uh, an agenda that will appeal to a broad section of the population. Uh, that would mean moving left in yeah. some sense. And that's the last thing on earth they want to do. Uh, you know, their paymasters at Goldman Sachs don't want them to do that. Yeah. You look at people like, you know, Diane Feinstein, who's been, um, uh, lost the official endorsement of the California Democratic Party, which is a stunning thing. Right. But, you know, she herself is rich. Her husband's a real estate developer. You know, this is the, the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is very tied to um, a set of industries that uh, don't like, uh, um, you know, this, this talk of, of an expanded welfare state and constraining corporate power and raising wages. Uh, the, the Democrats are uh, close to uh, a lot of uh, finance, parts of finance, right. uh, real estate, uh, so parts of tech, um, and you know, Hollywood. 
and lawyers. I mean, these are the classic Democratic business constituencies, and they don't want any part of this stuff. Uh, the Republican Party is uh, you know, the party of dirty industries and low-wage employers. Mm-hmm. Democrats are the party of you know these sort of more advanced industrial sectors. Mm-hmm. But neither of them wants to see anything like stronger unions, higher wages, or expanded welfare state. Yeah, I, when when someone asked me sort of like what I, what I think, why I think that uh, liberals are the, the way they are, the Democrats are the way they are, usually my sort of like one-line answer to it is that like uh, Democratic fecklessness is a form of class passive class solidarity right so like they're basically paid to take up space on the left and be useless and throw the game uh so that actual threats to power can't enter into the like legitimate political uh arena uh and and actually wreak some havoc yeah that's true i mean people say the democrats like a backbone and all those sorts of things are very confused i think you know their their fundamental problem is that they're a business party that has to pretend yes. that they're not. Yes. Uh, and so that that's a very confusing um, situation to be in. But there's also the aspect that uh, Lily Geisler, a uh, political scientist, wrote a really good book, uh, um, Don't Blame Us, I think was the title of it. Mm. But her argument was that starting in the 1970s, uh, the old Democratic constituency of labor and uh, uh, the urban working class was replaced by a more suburban professional constituency, uh, and she studied uh, some some of the suburbs of the northern suburbs of Boston, like uh, Newton and Lexington, uh, where professors and engineers lived. And this was a new Democratic constituency, uh, who were many of them against the Vietnam War, but also against the working class. Um, and so uh, this you know this is now a lot of the Democratic base. Um, electoral base and to some degree financial base um, is in this sector of, of you know, this professional managerial uh, class that is socially liberal, um, is offered gay marriage um, and uh, um, transgender bathrooms, but don't talk to them about uh, about raising wages or providing uh, social benefits. Right, right. I wanted to swing over a little bit uh, off course here. Uh, at one point, Trump was talking about uh, pulling out of the World Trade Organization, and he's, you know, made some wave, waves with uh, you know, trade war stuff and everything. What, what does he have? What does he stand to gain from this? Is this real, or is it just him mouthing off for his, uh, for his base? Um, you know, I can't say I can entirely figure it out. Uh, there are some people who uh, are, are uh, arguing that he's trying to. Um, open up Chinese markets for American tech firms. Nobody at Silicon Valley likes this guy, or very few people do. So I really don't see that. Um, what I, the only way I can really understand it is um, two things. One is he's a xenophobe. He just doesn't like trade. He doesn't like foreigners. Um, and the other thing is he sees um, the world as um, – a conflict between winners and losers. Uh, to him, there's no way in which trade can be mutually beneficial. Uh, uh, there has to be a winner. There has to be a loser. And he doesn't want to be the loser. I mean, that's the, you know, the one of the, the, the darkest words in the Trump vocabulary is loser. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that this is just another way for his, to work out his xenophobia. In a sense, you know, that, that China is there, – there's something real, I guess, behind some of it, in that China is a rising power, an economic and political power. 
that potential well, is it's a potential, not potential, but you know, actual rival to the United States in many spheres, uh, and he doesn't like that. Um, there are few people in the American elite who share, you know, who really want to like subdue China or go to war with China the way the way Trump seems to want to. Um, but so there there is that angle that you know, they want to contain China over the longer term. But I, I'm not sure that Trump is even capable of thinking in, in those sorts of long term ways or anything resembling a complex fashion. I think he just sees that China is. China's bad. China's full of Chinese people. Chinese people talk funny and look funny, and uh, they're they're dangerous. And there are just um, you know swarming hordes of them, and we need to put a stop to that threat. That's it's sad. insane, uh, you know. And you know he this is a guy who, who's got a budget now. He needs to borrow a trillion dollars a year. Mm. Um, Chinese have a lot of money, and uh, if you want to borrow a trillion dollars a year, you can't really antagonize China. Uh, but uh, this is. Uh, it's it, it doesn't make any sense um, either, you know, in orthodox um, capitalist terms, uh, or you know, you know, just in, like more humane terms of just trying to have a, a, a more peaceful, uh, you know, collegial planet. Um, it's just it's just horrible at every dimension, mm-hmm. as far as I it feels. It strikes me. Maybe it's that simple. Yanis uh, Varoufakis uh, put out a piece in The Guardian a few uh, months ago or so about uh, a lot of this stuff, and he was he seemed to think that there was a, a long game going on, but maybe maybe it's uh, simpler than that. Yeah, I, you know, I saw that argument of his, and I have a great deal of respect for Yanis, but I just don't buy it. I don't see any pressure coming out of Silicon Valley uh, to... Uh, to take these kind of aggressive moves to open up the Chinese market. Uh, they seem purely counterproductive at this point. Uh, and you know, Trump is really, there's some kind of deep craftiness to the guy. I mean, I don't want to say he's stupid because obviously he's, he's gone pretty far in life and um, has shown a considerable degree of resilience uh, in becoming president against all odds. But you know he knows nothing about the world. He's deeply ignorant um, uh, and just operates on pure instinct. Um, and I, since he's not getting any pressure out of Silicon Valley to um, to put pressure on the Chinese uh, to open up markets, and since Silicon Valley certainly doesn't seem to welcome this, um, I, I, I don't buy uh, Vera Fox's argument that there is some long-term strategy behind it. I really think it's more his, his, his coming out of his xenophobia and um, his dark view of the world as, as a battle between winners and losers. Right. I think we're getting sort of towards the end of uh, your time here, Doug. I don't want to keep you over. Uh, is there any uh, anything that you, uh, any thoughts that you had had that you wanted to close out with or? Well, you know, I'm, some, I'm, I'm on a, something of a vacation in Montreal right now and I'm, I'm i'm working but also playing and it's just i gotta say it's really nice to be be out of the united states for a couple of weeks uh, the place just seems like an utter madhouse that's falling completely 
down the down the chute. Well, and, I, I can uh, attest to that from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I, you know, I'll be immersing it once again. Um, so there's that dark side, but you know, like I was saying earlier, there's something that is really moving and inspiring about uh, the political activism of younger people now. So if there's anything that um, uh, gives me hope for the future, I have a 12 year old son at my advanced age, uh, and the only thing that gives me hope for his future is that uh, there are people in their 20s and 30s who are uh, pushing um, very aggressively, creatively for a better world. Uh, older people uh, just seem lost in, in darkness and despair. But, uh, you know, um, uh, it, uh, there, there is that bit of hope in the world right now. That's all right. I'm clinging to at this point. I haven't seen anything like it either. I mean, even, you know, it seems to me so much far advanced even than the, the new left, you know. I mean, we have people who are, you know, studying Marx and, you know, not it, – it, it, what I'm seeing now is a movement that's uh, – it, it really is encouraging. Yeah, that, absolutely. And it's totally still tiny, and but like it's – Always people who – no, it's, but it's significant. You know, yeah, yeah. you don't need that many people really to change the world. No, it's true. Uh, so um, it, it's just it's, – it's, it's really inspiring. It has a great deal of potential. Uh, so that's the only thing that keeps him in despair. Good. Any any musical uh, any musical uh, tips for us today, Doug? You always you always, <laughs> oh, you always God, include a, you always include a little, some good music in your in your show. So oh, throw uh, something out there, and we'll put it on. Uh, God, I can't think of anything right now. That's, that's okay. Uh, Mekons? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, the Mekons is always good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mekons always good. Yeah, yeah. America, uh, uh, you know, American astronauts. I like that one. Okay, there we go. Cool. Uh, and so, uh, Doug, right. Doug, is there any? Uh, do you want to uh, tell anybody uh, where to find you? Uh, where Where you're writing these days? Oh, uh, well, let's see. Uh, I do have a blog and uh, links to all my radio shows at uh, lbo-news.com. So if you want to do that, that's where to find that. Beautiful. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. That was extremely uh, helpful um, for me, and I uh, enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Doug. All right, thanks for having me. Bye. All right, Bye. see you.
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.